Merry Christmas, Eve, 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 Eve. I think it's four Eves today, right? Because Friday's Christmas Eve, and then uh, Thursday would be Christmas Eve, Eve, Wednesday, Eve, 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 Eve. It's four Christmas Eves, right? Well, whatever it is, Merry Christmas Eve. This is a lovely week. Um, this episode, I've been looking forward to for quite some time. It's actually my favorite thing to do at the end of each year is to compile a list of all the books that I've read throughout the entire year, start to finish, and then I rank them. I rank them based on whether I liked them, whether I disliked them, if I recommend them. And also, this list is a great way um, to pick people's Christmas presents. I almost always get my father-in-law and my dad um, books off of the list that I have read throughout the year. And th this, by the way, has been a tradition a Christmas tradition of mine for a long time, not necessarily the, the gifting of the books, but books themselves have been a Christmas tradition in my family for a long time. Um, some of my favorite Christmas memories are when I was a kid. Um, by the way, just be forewarned, super, super nerdy kid. Like think of a homeschooled kid in all her nerdy glory. That was me. I asked for books for Christmas every year. That's pretty much what I wanted. And when I was in grade school, probably like I don't know, third, fourth grade. I'm not exactly sure how old, but right around, right around age 10, 11, 12, probably, probably 10 and 11. I, I was really into the Hardy Boys books and I would ask for all of the latest, well, not the latest, they've all been published, but I would ask for an additional batch of Hardy Boys books. I had read so many that my mom had to um, not just get the ones that were currently in print. She had to, you know, go to the, this was, sort of at the beginning of internet booksellers. This was before Amazon. Um, and she'd have to go online to online booksellers, some of some of them even like in the UK, out of the country, to find old Hardy Boys books that were no longer in print um, to give us for Christmas. And I would get a stack about this big for Christmas. My older sister would get a stack about this big. And we would sit there. We'd be so excited, obviously, but we'd sit there and we'd count. We'd say, yes, I got eight of them. That means I'll have a book to read for the next week a book a day for the next week, week and one day. And then we would trade and we would read each other's books. So um, like I said, I warned you, a nerd in all her glory with, um, with all these books at Christmas. In fact, one year I asked for, this was when I was a little bit older, maybe high school. I asked for a bookshelf for my bedroom in my parents' house for Christmas. And my grandfather built me one. He built me one, it's still in my mom's house. In fact, I filled it up so fast that he built me another one. And then I filled that up so fast, he built me a third one. All three of them are still in my mom's house. I actually intend to take them back for my own home. Um, it's just a pain to travel with, you know, furniture. So I haven't done it yet. But mom, I will be taking those bookshelves back at some point. So as you can see, books have always been a huge part of my life. I'm a voracious reader. And I like every year, like I said, it, it makes me very excited to share my five best books that I've read all year. Um, so let's get to it. I'm Liz Wheeler. This is The Liz Wheeler Show. You guys can't hear what I can hear right now in my ear. The great and powerful Jay Hay is laughing at me. He says he wants to see a picture of nerdy Liz in all her glory. And let me just say this, I will never, ever, ever allow a photo from that time in my life to surface, specifically because I don't want Jay Hay to see it. Um, also, speaking of nerds, he's literally reading me the definition of what wassailing means, as in, here we go, a wassailing. Um, for anybody that's interested, the actual definition of this word is to, of wassailing, drink plentiful amounts of alcohol and enjoy oneself with others in a noisy, lively way, or to go house to house at Christmas singing carols. Now, I'm a traditionalist, you know this, so I always knew the song is Here We Go A Caroling, not Here We Go A Wassling. I've heard that, but if that, I mean, if that's the traditional, if that's the traditional word that's used in that song, who am I to say otherwise? But I think we know. I think we know who's the nerd here. I think we know who's the nerd here. Um, I'll claim it a little bit, but let's not pretend we're too cool for school. 
All right, back to the books though, back to the books. So I actually could not decide of these five books that I am about to share with you. These are, these are in no, no particular order. It's not descending, it's not ascending. It's just the five books and you should read this. And as usual, there are just a few more than five, so bear with me. So before we get to the first book though, I wanna to talk to you about stamps.com. If you're looking for ways to skip the trip to the post office and dodge all of the hectic holiday shopping traffic, and aren't we all? Why not save time and money with Stamps.com? Stamps.com lets you compare rates, print labels, and access exclusive discounts on UPS and USPS services all year long. Here at Soundfront, we use Stamps.com to do business on the road to save time and money. It just makes sense, especially if your business sends more mail and packages during the holidays. Whether you are selling online, whether you're running an office or a side hustle, Stamps.com can save you so much time, money, and stress during the holidays. And get discounts on post office and UPS shipping services without making the trip. Discounts you can't find anywhere else, like up to 40% off USPS rates and 76% off UPS. Going to the post office instead of using stamps.com, it's kind of like taking the stairs instead of the elevator. If you spend more than a few minutes a week dealing with mail and shipping, stamps.com is a lifesaver. So save time and money this holiday season with stamps.com. Sign up with promo code Liz for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, free postage, and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the page, and enter code Liz. Stamps.com. Okay, book number one is called Why We Need the Electoral College by Tara Ross. Now, Tara Ross has been a scholar on the Electoral College, and she's openly in favor of it, which I appreciate in scholars. I don't really believe in the idea of being unbiased. I believe that most people have personal opinions on most things. And I understand that you can structure studies, you can structure surveys in a way that tries to adjust for biases, blah, blah, blah. But um, when you are a scholar in a certain area, I just don't believe that you don't have an opinion on it. So I'd rather know your opinion so that I can adjust for your bias myself. So that being said, Tara Ross is in favor of the Electoral College. She does a very good job though in exploring the pros and cons. And this is particularly interesting. I, I read this book at the beginning of the year, actually while I was on maternity leave. Um, I read this book because this is going to be one of the next battles that the left fights. I mean, we have what, what did we talk about in the past couple of weeks? We've talked about how Pete Buttigieg is being boosted by the mainstream media, by the Democratic Party. They're trying to make him the heir apparent to the Democratic Party because Kamala Harris is essentially falling apart. Um, well, Pete Buttigieg is not moderate, though they want you to believe that he is. He's not milk toast, though he appears to be a naive little boy. No, no, he has Marxist roots. He's very radical. And if you look at a laundry list of what policies he supports, they're very, very far left. They would fundamentally transform our nation, to use the words of a former radical leftist president. So Pete Buttigieg wants to abolish the Electoral College, and this is necessary for the Democrats if they want to have a permanent hold on our government. If they don't want it to be, well, first we have four eight years of Democratic president, and then it swings the other day, other way to four or eight years of president from the opposing party, and then it swings back. That's typically what happens in our country. That's typically um, who controls power, whether it's in Congress, whether it's the presidency in the White House. It typically goes back and forth. Well, the Democrats proved in 2020 that they want, you know, to win elections by hook or by crook, and they want to get rid of the Electoral College next to help them do that. So I thought to myself, well, I have a pretty good baseline understanding of the Electoral College, but I need a much deeper understanding. I wanna know the nitty gritties. I wanna be able to debate the Electoral College with someone who is adamantly opposed to it. I wanna understand their arguments and I wanna be able to debunk their arguments, not just in a general sense. I wanna be able to say, okay, this specifically is your argument. Here's how it's debunked. 
in the Federalist Papers, maybe. Or this is how it's debunked when you look at this particular election year. This book, Why We Need the Electoral College by Tara Ross, gives you the exact roadmap that you need to be able to do just that. Now, I'm not claiming that, that I could go up and win every debate on the Electoral College as Tara Ross, I'm sure, can. However, it is really interesting because that's how she lays out her book. She lays out her book explaining not only the history of it and why it was necessary and why the founders chose to create this system versus what would be known as a pure democracy or a direct democracy, meaning, you know, a president just winning by the popular vote of the people nationally. She talks about why the founders laid out this system, this electoral college, the way that they did. Um, and how originally they actually, the founding fathers planned for a representative republic, which means that the people's representatives in Congress elect a president from amongst themselves, similar to how they elect a speaker of the house. This was actually in Madison's first draft of the constitution. However, they very astutely worried about the fact that, well, Congress might be corrupt. They might get power hungry and there might be a lot of backroom bargaining and really dirty tricks to try to get the person that they want into um, the Oval Office. It wasn't the Oval Office at the time, but you know what I'm talking about. Um, and so they decided to forego this idea of a representative republic um, because they wanted to avoid those backroom deals. They also wanted to avoid the tyranny of the majority. The tyranny of the majority is mob rule, essentially, and this is inherent to pure democracies. You get this idea, people get, um, whether it's a good idea or a bad idea, whether it violates people's rights or not, but when people get caught up in their emotion, they're very quick to unintentionally give away their rights. I mean, we see this happening with COVID. We see how the fear has caused people to say, okay, you can prevent me from doing business if I haven't been vaccinated. You can shut down my church, you know, because there's no way to social distance. You can force children to wear masks on planes, you know, all in the name of saving lives. People give up their liberties when they are caught up in emotion and the electoral college helps prevent the na on, on a national level, the entire electorate from doing that because it helps prevent the tyranny of the majority or the mob rule. The founders knew all of this. They also knew that in a system, a federalist system like we have, the system of states, that the electoral college would help um, on a statewide level, meaning one state compared to another, would help minority voices be heard or minority interests be represented in the federal government. And what would, what would happen or what could happen or what will happen if the Democrats abolish the Electoral College, is states that don't have a concentrated population, their interests won't be represented in um, the way that, say, New York or California will because of the concentration of population in those states. But when you have um, one state counting as one state, another state counting as another state, and those states are counted equally, even if it's not exactly equal, proportionally equally, then the interests of a minority state can actually compete with the interests of a majority state, and therefore people all over the country are represented. So this was kind of the, the history of the Electoral College. And then, and then Tara Ross goes into, um, goes into what's the left's most common argument against the Electoral College, and that would be they claim that it's racist. They claim that the history of when this was being debated was also coupled with the history of um, the three-fifths compromise or this very abhorrent-sounding um, part of our Constitution that counted slaves as three-fifths of a person, not an entire person, for the purposes of congressional representation and taxation. And the left intentionally, I don't even think this is just ignorance, I think that they intentionally misrepresent what the debate around the three-fifths compromise was and what it was actually about. They make it 
seem as though it was about the humanity of the person. And I understand that there's no way to intrinsically divorce it from the humanity of the person. But the idea of the Three-Fifths Compromise was actually the North not wanting slave owners to have um, more power in Congress because they could count their non-free slaves as whole people for the purposes of having a number of representatives in Congress. So I'm not not endorsing the Three-Fifths Compromise. I'm just saying, if you look at history, the context of why it came to be, what it actually was, and what purpose it was constructed for is very different than what the left will have you um, believe. And she goes, she goes very deeply into this. So at the risk of talking about the Electoral College for the whole show, because I probably could, I also read um, the counter book to why we need the Electoral College. This is the liberal version of it. It was written by leftist Jesse Wegman, who pretends somewhat to do what I described that I don't like before. He pretends to be a little more unbiased than he is. Um, However, he does come out very clearly and say he thinks that it should be discontinued. His book is called Let the People Pick the President. And like I said, he's anti-electoral college. It's very interesting to read both sides on an issue. I highly recommend that you do that. I do recommend that you read Why We Need the Electoral College first because every argument that Jesse Wegman makes in his book is debunked by Tara Ross. So once you've read Tara Ross, you can see that. You can see how, um, how unsound the arguments coming from the left are on the Electoral College. So that is the first book that I recommend. Well, the first two books, but I'm counting it as one because it's the same topic. And we will go on to the second book in just a moment. But first, I want to talk about Paint Your Life. PaintYourLife.com is just as cool as it sounds. This is my kind of product. You literally get to turn your favorite memories into art that lasts forever. This is how it works. You submit a picture, a photo, any photo, and an artist turns that, paints it into a painting. This is such a meaningful gift for birthdays, anniversaries, weddings, any kind of gift-giving occasion. And when I heard about this product, I figured, well, that's really cool, but it must be expensive. It's not. It's not expensive. In fact, it's eminently affordable for any gift-giving occasion, and you are in complete control of this. When you submit your photo, you get to approve a draft before the painter paints the painting um, to make sure that you like it. And then once the painting is painted, they will ship it to you in as little as two weeks. Again, this is my kind of photo. So think about any of your emotional life moments, your wedding, your anniversary, you know, a graduation, your child's birthday, um, a family get-together, maybe your favorite pet. Really, really cool. Um, paintyourlife.com, there's also no risk. If you don't love the final painting, then your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. You can get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, text the word Liz to 64,000. That's Liz to 64,000. Liz to 64,000. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter the most. Okay, so book number two. I briefly talked about on the show a month ago when I was completing it. This was a book, actually. So it's called Takedown, From Communists to Progressives, How the Left Has Sabotaged Family and Marriage. It was written by Dr. Paul Kangor. This book, for whatever reason, took me a really long time to read because each chapter in his book actually could have been expanded into an entire book of its own. So he talks about how from the advent of Marxism or the advent of communism, how they've really had their eye on destroying the traditional family unit. That would be one man and one woman married to each other for life who raise um, biological children within that family unit in their home, understanding that the parents have parental rights over the children, the traditional family structure. We don't have to get political about it. Well, each and every chapter in this book is interesting because Dr. Kangor you know, walks through, well, how? How are communists trying to destroy marriage? And he talks about, well, marriage itself. He talks about the sexual revolution and how the sexual revolution 
ushered in promiscuity. What does promiscuity do? It damages marriage, birth control and abortion. What do birth control and abortion do? Well, they not only damage sexuality, they damage children in marriage, destroy relationships. He talks about rat, the roots of radical feminism in Marxism and how radical feminism is, I mean, it is anti-woman, it's also anti-man, and it's certainly anti-marriage, anti-monogamy. He talks about gay marriage, obviously destructive to um, traditional marriage when it's recognized the way that our government recognizes. He talks about transgenderism and the assault on gender. He talks about parental rights over their children. He talks about atheism. As I said, this, this book is I'm a pretty quick reader. Let's just say that. I'm a pretty quick reader and I input data from books pretty well. This book took me a long time to read because each and every chapter was so chock full of history and information that I was constantly jotting down the names of other references and other books that he um, was citing. But it is very interesting because we on the right, particularly the evangelical right, make accusations of the left pretty frequently that they don't respect marriage, they don't respect, you know, sex as intended by God in the context of marriage. They certainly don't respect the dignity of life. They don't respect, um, well, gender. They don't respect science or religion, however you want to look at that. A combination of both would be best. And we make these accusations, but it's really interesting to see that this isn't just haphazard. It isn't some woke ideology that they have invented on the fly to meet the moment, if you will, I hate that phrase that the left uses, but seems apropos here. No, no, this is something that was discussed as far back as Karl Marx and Marx and Engels. Actually, Engels specifically was very anti-family, very anti-traditional marriage, very anti-monogamy, very sexually promiscuous in not only his philosophy, but in his behavior. And it's very interesting to see some of the um, some of the outgrowth of this philosophy, you know, whether it was Marx and Engels, whether it was the Frankfurt School, whether it was, you know, the Soviet Union, whether it was communist China, Mao's China, wherever it was, like the the original philosophy that was, that grew into the ideologies of now. So the original philosophy of radical feminism from the Soviet Union that encouraged abortion, that was exported here, that Margaret Sanger actually admired in the Soviet Union. Um, you know, that's just one example, but it's very interesting to see the history, to see how that philosophy when it was discussed back then has now come to roost here in the United States and how destructive it is. And we all know, of course, th this is a quote. By the way, I almost didn't write any notes for this um, show at all because I thought, well, if I write notes based on these books, then I'm going to have to do a whole episode on each of the books. And um, that's true. I have literally probably like 50 notes from this book and I don't even, they're all so good. I don't know what to pull. But this is one of the things that Dr. Kengor says. He says, children who grow up with the presence of a mother and father are less likely to be poor, to end up in prison or to get addicted to drugs. Also, they are generally healthier, stronger, and more successful. The most common denominator among men in prisons is not racial or ethnic background, not income or class distinction, not high school or college diploma, but whether or not they grew up with a father in the home. And that, I mean, it's entirely true. The statistics show that, the surveys show that, the data shows that. That is why radical leftists have their eye on marriage because marriage is this, this I don't want to call it indestructible, but this foundational, fundamental institution on which our nation is built. We talk so often about our nation being built on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but truly our nation is built on the family. 
Our nation is built on this bedrock idea that a man and a woman get married and have children and operate as a little community in and, un, in, in, in and unto themselves. And that this family provides and protects each other and takes care of each other and keeps each other moral and healthy and fulfilled and happy and lives for each other and not just them, not just each individual to himself or herself. And if we destroy that in our country, or if we allow it to be destroyed, then it's going to be very easy for the left to change our system of government as well, because the needs of our country will change if the institutions of our country changes. So if you destroy marriage, then who are people going to rely on? They're not going to rely on their parents. They're not going to rely on their spouses. They're not going to rely on their children. They're going to have to look outside of that family structure for reliance. And that's exactly what radical leftists want. They want people to need the government because in order for um, a westernized nation like the United States, a free nation, to be transformed into a Marxist nation, there has to be some impetus. There has to be some, some reason for that to happen. And one of the reasons could certainly be that people are desperate for help. They're desperate for something to rely on and the government can swoop in as a savior and say, well, we'll save you. However, this is what you have to pay us. Again, this is what we see in COVID. We see, we'll save you. Only the government can save you. Only the government can save the economy. Only the government can save lives. Only the government, you know, is the answer here. But you have to sacrifice your liberties. You have to close down your business. You have to sacrifice your Christmas. You have to listen to the CEO of Pfizer over your own uh, common sense here. So highly recommend Take Down from Communists to Progressive, How the Left Has Sabotaged Family and Marriage. You will learn so much, so much. I certainly did. So by the way, thank you to Paul Kangor for all of that research. I can't even imagine um, how many hours that took, how many how much time that took to write that book. All right, book number three coming up next. You're going to love this one. But first, let's talk about AMAC. The Liz Wheeler Show is sponsored today by AMAC. Did you know that there is a conservative advocacy and benefits organization with more than 2 million members and counting? It's called AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has become one of the most impactful conservative organizations in America. Joining AMAC gives you access to money-saving benefits, cutting-edge news, and a magazine full of insightful takes on today's most important issues. But most importantly, AMAC is working tirelessly to preserve the freedom secured by our Constitution. With a full-time presence on Capitol Hill, AMAC is pushing back against the efforts to defund our police, weaken our borders, and replace your freedom with government controls. So stand with me and over 2 million patriots by joining right now at amac.us forward slash Liz. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S forward slash Liz. The benefits are great, but the cause is greater. So join today at amac.us forward slash Liz. A-M-A-C dot U-S forward slash Liz. You'll be glad you did. amac.us forward slash Liz. Okay, book number three on my list this year, my list, my 2021 best books list is Rigged, How the Media, Big Tech, and the Democrats Seized Our Elections written by Molly Hemingway of The Federalist. This book was fantastic. I, I, I spoke briefly about this book a couple of weeks ago, and I said, you know, one of the things that, one of the games that I play when I read books written by other pundits versus, um, versus, I guess, academic books is I see if I can find any information about a certain topic that I didn't already know. I like to be a collector of information. And Molly Hemingway did not disappoint. There was information in this book that I did not know. And I say that as someone who followed what happened during you know the election of 2020 and in the aftermath, pretty darn close. I mean, I took 
a day or two off when I gave birth in January from following uh, news and what was going on. But for the most part, I was pretty up to date on everything that was happening. And Molly Hemingway went even a step further than that. And it was really, really interesting. So th this is doubly important, by the way, as we see Stacey Abrams announce that she is going to run for governor of Georgia again against Brian Kemp again. Um, and she feels more sure, I think, this time that she can win because of the election laws that have been ushered in in states across the nation. Um, this is especially important because electioneering is a big problem. And what I mean by electioneering is there is a difference in a very technical sense between outright voter fraud and electioneering, right? Outright voter fraud would be, you know, representing yourself to be someone else at the polling place or stealing someone's absentee ballot. You know, voter fraud, voter fraud. Electioneering is a more subtle type of cheating. And I'm going to call it cheating because it's unethical and it does violate either people's individual rights or at a state level, it violates... Um, it violates either, well, state law, really, because it, it violates who is allowed to change election-related law. So electioneering, we saw a ton of electioneering in the 2020, in the lead up to the 2020 election. We saw, you know, universal mail-in ballots. We saw drop boxes 24-7. We saw the dates that absentee ballots had to be mailed or could be counted by. We saw that changed. We saw all kinds of different, we saw ballot harvesting allowed, all kinds of different election-related procedures changed, sometimes legitimately, sometimes very questionably. So this is, this is something that we as a nation, but particularly the conservative movement, because we care about the integrity of our nation, we want to preserve what we have. Um, the Democrats, of course, being the opposite, they want to change our country, they want to change what we have. Um, we have to be very careful and very protective against electioneering. And Molly Hemingway opens her book by talking about how some of this electioneering has happened in our country and who is behind it. She talks about this Democrat super lawyer named Mark Elias, who is behind a lot of these lawsuits in um, close elections, not necessarily in Democratic states even, but when there is a close election that means something. For example, when Al Franken um, won his Senate seat. Al Franken, Al Franken was essentially the deciding vote and whether Obamacare passed into law. Without Al Franken's vote, we wouldn't have Obamacare. But Al Franken won his seat because of this, this Democrat um, super lawyer, this election lawyer, or this election specialist named Mark Elias because the original count from the Al Franken Senate race, Al Franken lost until Mark Elias came in, filed a lawsuit. There were different ballots that were thrown out, different ballots that were counted, um, differently than originally. And what ended up happening is Al Franken went to the Senate and then Obamacare was passed. I mean, this, this stuff has big, big consequences. That's just one example. Molly Hemingway talks about a lot of different examples. Um, and so we, we, we have to be very careful as a conservative movement to be protective of this. But she also goes into, and this might be the most controversial chapter in her whole book. I found it to be fascinating. She's going through analyzing what happened after the 2020 election with the lawsuits. You know, there, there were lawsuits in Wisconsin, there was lawsuits in Arizona, there was lawsuits in Pennsylvania. And she talks about the Pennsylvania lawsuit and what it was about. And it was, it was very nitty gritty, right? It wasn't tweetable. It wasn't, it couldn't be distilled into one talking point or one meme because it was very nitty gritty around election law. And so people had a hard time understanding what it was because the mainstream media didn't want to talk about it and it couldn't just be sloganed. It couldn't be sloganeered. And the Trump team was very close or had a decent chance of winning this lawsuit in Pennsylvania until, until, until Rudy Giuliani swept in. 
Now, this, like I said, this is very controversial. It's very interesting that Molly Hemingway talks about this, but this is what she says. She goes, prior to this case is being heard, Ruli Giuliani had held a press conference at the Four Seasons Total Landscaping Company where instead of talking about all the legitimate issues affecting the Pennsylvania election, and there were so many, he put forth dramatic claims about voter fraud. And she goes through and parses what the legitimate issues were versus what Giuliani's tweetable accusations, his sloganeering were, and how the sloganeering and, you know, the tweeting, those accusations actually polluted the very real lawsuit to the point that it was, you know, it, it didn't work out. And how if it had worked out, that could have changed the course of the entire Pennsylvania election. Again, a very, a very controversial, but so well done. Very, very well done. Um, highly recommend that you read Rigged, How the Media, Big Tech, and the Democrats Seized Our Elections by Molly Hemingway. If we don't protect against this, the Democrats are going to be emboldened, and they certainly will do it again. So the fourth book on my list this year is not a political book per se. It's a book that I read um, partially in 2020, but I finished it up in 2021. So that's how my book list works, by the way. If there's any um, book that I start at the end of a year and finish in January, it counts as the January year. So this one is called Ina May's Guide to Childbirth, written by Ina May Gaskin. Now, bear with me, men who are listening to this. This is not just for women, actually, because Ina May Gaskin is one of the preeminent midwives in our country. She ran a uh, midwifery practice for years and years, and Almost any midwife or birth professional who has any interest in the natural childbirth process knows who Ina Mae Gaskin is, was either trained by Ina Mae Gaskin or trained by her materials because this woman was just phenomenal. Now, I will warn you from the out outset, she's a little hippy-dippy. I mean, I'm crunchy and I even think she's hippy-dippy, um, but she knows her stuff. And when I was pregnant, one of the things that I liked the least was how often other women who have had babies, other moms, told me about their traumatic birth stories. I mean, every pregnant woman in the world has experienced this. Every woman listening to this is nodding their head because when you're pregnant, the last thing that you want to do is be frightened. The last thing you want to do is hear about some nightmare that happened to another woman at birth. Birth is scary enough, especially for a first-time mom. You haven't experienced this before. You don't know what to expect. You know, you've heard that it's very painful. You've heard that it's the hardest thing you'll ever do. And then you have all these other women saying, oh my God, you wouldn't believe what happened to me. It was so awful. 36 hours of labor, then a C-section, then I couldn't see my baby and I had a problem nursing. And just, it'll make you so anxious. It'll make you so terrified. And I learned, by the way, to be so positive. This was a huge learning lesson for me too and how I treat other pregnant women. I will never ever say anything but encouragement to another pregnant woman about birth unless she specifically asks me because it's so terrifying to be told um, about all of this terrible, all of these traumatic birth stories. However, all of this is to say, your birth story doesn't have to be traumatic. This idea that we have an epidemic of traumatic births is not how we as women were intended to give birth. Like, yes, labor is painful. Labor is difficult. Labor is hard. Giving birth is difficult. It's painful. It's hard. But we were made to do this. Our bodies were made to do this. But we've become so medicalized in our society. And before anybody thinks that I'm before anybody says anything here, let me just say, the medical field has saved so many women's lives, so many pregnant women's lives, so many moms' lives. I mean, once doctors started washing their hands, women stopped dying of childbed fever. When we got to the era of antibiotics, women stopped dying in childbirth. I mean, it's been an amazing, amazing um, to see the progress that the medical field has made. However, there's so there's it's been so medicalized that we've forgotten to respect 
women's bodies. We've forgotten that women's bodies aren't textbooks, that everybody's a little bit different and that we're made to do this. And I decided, thanks to uh, my mother's experience, because she was also into natural birth, I decided to do natural childbirth and to have a midwife and to do it at a birth center. And it was the most empowering, most amazing experience that I highly recommend to any other woman who is pregnant. And your question is going to be, okay, but I don't know how. What do I do? How do I do this? What do I need to know? I don't even know what I don't know. That's what I thought. This book gives you all the answers. So Ina May's Guide to Childbirth by Ina May Gaskin. Again, I know I said that this was not just for women because men, husbands, also need to understand the absolutely phenomenal things that their women, that their wives' bodies can do bearing children and giving birth. And um, it's not as scary when you understand what each little thing does. Like, for example, one of the things I read in this book that was helpful for me is when you get to um, the transition in your labor, the transition is, you know, right before you would start pushing after hours of contractions. Most women say the same thing. They actually verbally say the same thing. They say, I can't do this anymore. I absolutely can't do this anymore. I can't. You have to stop it. And in this book, she says, almost every woman that I have attended during birth says this exact same thing at transition, but know that as soon as you feel that way, it's almost over. You're almost to the pushing stage, which means you're almost going to meet your baby. And for me, I'm a very in-your-head type of person. Knowing this sort of information about my body and about how I could expect that I would react in this brand new situation made me able to do it. It made me able to handle this because I recognized that or my husband recognized it or my midwife or my doula recognized it. And it was really phenomenal. Um, so I, I highly recommend, I mean, we, we should, we should, we should start, we should start this revolution in the country, our generation of getting back to natural childbirth, because we don't need to have these traumatic birth stories. Women don't need to be so scarred from them that they feel it necessary to pass it on to um, new moms or expectant moms, because that's, you know, that's not, that's not positive. That's not a positive experience. Anime's Guide to Childbirth by Anime Gaskin. And then my final book is also not political. I also like to read fiction. I've always liked to read fiction, as I mentioned at the top of the show. I still do, not as much. I don't do it as much as I used to. But Georgiana Darcy's Diary by Anna Elliott is my fifth book. This is actually, full disclosure, I, this is not the first year that I've read this book. I've reread this book multiple times. It's my, when I need to escape from whatever book that I go to, all of Jane Austen's uh, work is in that category. Obviously, this is, I suppose, fan fiction because it was not written by Jane Austen, but it is written about Jane Austen's characters. It's really, really well done. I also read this one on maternity leave. I read this one in the middle of the night during those first couple months when I was awake all the time. Um, read it on my phone, on my Kindle while I was nursing the baby at night. And it is just delightful. It's such a nice story. Um, and one of the one of the things I like the best about Jane Austen's books is she really captures human nature. She captures um, both sides of the character of each individual. So you can have this protagonist that you like, and you also see her flaws. She says things that she wishes she hadn't. She acts in ways that are incorrect and wrong, that she regrets, and she changes her behavior. And Jane Austen has had, I mean, this is why her books are so famous, right? Why they've stood the test of time, is because you relate to her characters, because human nature doesn't change. Human nature is timeless. What changes is, you know, fashion and industry and technology and you know, economy and even country. But what doesn't change is our innate human nature. She captures this and in a really, in a really, really charming way. Anna Elliott, this is, there's actually three books in this series. It's Georgiana Darcy's Diary. Then Georgiana's Diary Part Two is called From Pemberley to Waterloo. And then she has Kitty Bennett's Diary. These are periphery characters in Jane Austen's original series. And 
again, one of the reasons I like it is because I like to study human nature. I also think that family is the most important thing. So these are stories about families. Family, as I said before, is the foundation of our society. Um, family is the manifestation of God's love for us. And so when you're able to understand human nature, you understand the family unit better and you're better able to support the family unit. So it's not just a fun thing to read. It's also just useful to understand the people around us. So those are my five books. However, there was a couple of other books that made honorable mention that I would like to just briefly talk about. So the book that I'm in the middle of reading now I have not uh, yet finished it. It's called The Second Founding, An Introduction to the 14th Amendment by Professor Elon Worman. It's really, really good. This, this is a very academic book, but it's really important to read right now as the Supreme Court is, heard the oral arguments for the Dobbs versus Jackson's, Jackson Women's Health Organization, the abortion case, um, before they rule on it in June. As you know, the justification, justification constitutionally, I just can't resist putting those in quotes because it's so unconstitutional, is the 14th Amendment. Um, they or That's their argument. That's what it's based on. But when you read this book, you realize you have a deeper understanding for what the 14th Amendment actually means. And it's very educational and will be very useful when the judges make their pronouncement about uh, abortion in June. He's also, by the way, Elon Werman. I'm a longtime fan of his work. He also wrote A Debt Against the Living, An Introduction to Originalism, um, that I read a couple of years ago, but it's about the originalist interpretation of the Constitution. And it's very, here's the thing. Here's the thing with these academic books about the Constitution. Some of them are so, so academic that they're very difficult to read. You have to study them just paragraph by paragraph. Elon Worman does a very good job of making something readable, but very heavily educational at the same time. So you can read 20, 30 pages of this book without burning your mind out. Um, and you will really know your stuff at the end of it. The last one that I will mention is actually a poem. It's a poem, and we read this poem for Verdict at Thanksgiving, for Verdict with Ted Cruz at Thanksgiving, and I really, really wanted to make a joke about it at the time, and no one on Verdict thought it was, no one on, well, I shouldn't say, I didn't say it on Verdict. I said it in our pre-production meeting, and no one thought it was funny. Um, the poem is called The Courtship of Miles Standish by Henry Wadsworth Longsfellow, and here was my joke. My joke was, about Longfellow, and here it is. He's a poet, and he knows it, and his feet show it, because they're Longfellows. Isn't that funny? I know. I knew that John, I knew that Jay Hay was going to boo in my ear as soon as I said it. Um, it's it's a very fun and not too difficult to read poem. I'm not a huge fan of um, poetry that's sort of narrative poetry, but I enjoyed this one, and I think that you will too. My New Year's resolution, as always, is to read 50 books um, every year. I failed woefully on that New Year's re resolution this year. I'm not even sure I'm going to hit a full 30 books again. I don't want to blame anyone, but I did, you know, give birth to a child. So I don't know if I get an excuse for that. Um, for locals, VIPs, you have early access to my interview with Amanda Melius. You may recognize not only her work, but you may recognize that last name Melius from some very, very famous Hollywood movies. Highly recommend this interview. We had a great time talking. For Locals VIPs, um, you get early access to this interview and it's quite something. If you are not a Locals VIP, now is the time to do it. Just a couple days left. As I said, it's Christmas Eve, 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 Eve. So what, four days left for until the sale ends to become a Locals VIP. Right now, this is the cheapest it will ever be. It is $56 to become an annual VIP. You get access to all kinds of cool things, not just early access to these interviews, but extended segments on the show. I just did, um, I just did a live. I do lives all the time. I do question and answers. We post, we talk. The censorship-free 
platform. We don't have to worry about big tech. It's great. Go to LizWheelershow.com slash locals and join us over there for the very inexpensive price of $56 a year. Um, thank you for watching today. Thank you for listening. I'm Liz Wheeler. This is The Liz Wheeler Show. The Liz Wheeler Show is produced by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer, Chad Abbott. Director of photography, Kevin McRoberts. Editor, Alejandro Figuerilla. Sound mixer, Robin Fenderson. Director of marketing, Emily Washler. Production and talent coordinator, Matt Toffler. And senior publicist, Patricia Jackson. This has been a Soundfront production.